friends, this is Secret Sauce, a podcast about the secret ingredients in artwork and life. I'm your host, Becca Borelli. I'm also an illustrator in Austin, Texas, and this is How is an Art Form? Um, I decided to stop numbering the episodes. I've been stockpiling some recordings and <laughs> slowly thinking about how they're going to get posted and realizing that having numbers is not as important as having good good titles <laughs> so um anyway it's been a little while there's so much to update you on but I'm gonna try to do it quickly because I'm excited to dive into today's story um the first and foremost I have deactivated um all of my social media except for the secret sauce instagram account I do believe is still up I'm not totally sure I haven't looked but I think it's there and this episode will be posted there um if it is up if it's not I'll probably just leave it down for now um I've I it's a radical thing let me just start off by saying that to in the place you know that any artist working artist is in to deactivate social media is you know on its face pretty radical but you know I'm I'm not going to lie. I'm starting to really explore this idea. I actually don't know what I'm going to find. Maybe I'll find that it was like a terrible idea from a business standpoint. But I suspect it might not be nearly as terrible as I imagine. And and that's not to say that, that that's the case for everybody. Like it's this is definitely not an announcement to encourage people to all go deactivate their accounts. Although if you've been thinking about it, let me tell you, it's glorious. <laughs> I've been um, completely, um, detached from social media for about a month and, uh, personal and professional. And it's been wonderful. I actually didn't realize, like, I think I thought I knew how social media was negatively impacting me. And when I finally took the plunge and deactivated all of the accounts, um, you know, some of it wasn't, a, was not a surprise at all, but some of it was absolutely a surprise <laughs> like uh, social media was negatively messing with me in ways that I had no idea about until until it was gone um so for now for the foreseeable future the best places to stay connected with me is through subscribing to this podcast so you can get notifications directly to your email um it is it, this podcast is in pretty much all the major platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, uh, Podbean. Um, you can also subscribe directly on our site, BeccaJBorelli.com. And the other uh, options is please, at our website, BeccaJBorelli.com, you can um, subscribe to the newsletter. It's a monthly email, very brief. It just has information about upcoming classes and um and news from the studio, nothing incredibly intense. <laughs> At some point, the newsletter is going to change, but for now, that's what's going on there. And we also um, have a free subscription membership to the Heart School. The Heart School is a online virtual space for people that are interested in making process-focused art. Um, I've been teaching process-focused classes there virtually since October of 2020. It's been awesome. It's a pretty small little group of folks. It's about 120 people. Um, 
but it's a really neat place to to test the waters and see if processed based art artistry creative classes in general because we're slowly very excited to share this we're slowly starting to expand beyond visual art making which is more of my realm and um sean petrie has done a few classes with us he is an amazing poet and improvisational writer and ut professor um in a totally different realm legal writing <laughs> so he's a neat a neat guy and a lovely teacher um as well as some other folks that are slowly starting to make appearances over there as well um doing yoga um talking about movement talking about mindfulness and meditation other things going on so if you want to subscribe it's a pretty quiet little space right now there's not a whole lot going over there going on over there partly because last announcement i am about to retreat into the maternity cave (laughs) of the first three months or the fourth trimester of our little babe who is coming august 12th is the due date holy moly um part of the up and down of the podcast has just been trying to navigate the the last nine months and I kind of just decided that the podcast you know I've mentioned in a few past episodes was going to be when it could be and hopefully in the future will be more regular because um it's important I I mean I, I totally get it I don't have regular listenership to podcasts that are sporadic (laughs) so I don't expect y'all to either um but for now I know there are folks that listen regularly to the ones that do get posted and I want to thank you for that because um it means a lot to me and hopefully by October November of 2021 things are going to slowly start to re-emerge I have no idea what to expect of our first baby um and there'll be some more news about that coming forward. But right now, um, it's just been a lot of transition and and good transition, by the way. So I want to talk about the how as an art form. I want to talk about how you do stuff as an art form in and of itself. Um This idea is actually one of the foundational concepts of process-based art making. It's the one of the foundational concepts of the heart school in general. Um, What does it mean to focus your energy on how you do something instead of what you're doing? Uh, This is huge, by the way. It sounds sounds decidedly not huge, but it's huge. Partly because our entire culture is based on what we're we're a what culture um we're an image culture what is on the surface what is the what is the thing right even our economy is based on production of physical objects or if not physical objects services that are tangible and quantifiable right the how is important to us obviously And it's increasingly becoming more important to our culture, as we're going to talk about a little bit. Um, 
But I really want to talk about how this obsession with what has really affected art making and how it affected my art making and how it might have affected your art making. I'm wondering if you've had experiences with this obsession over how does my thing look? How do people receive my thing? How do I receive my thing? Um, how do I improve my technical skill? How do I improve execution? Um, you know, all of these these obsessive thoughts that can really creep in when we're making something um, in any creative aspect, by the way, not just painting or clay, but like music and theater and um, interior design and mowing the lawn <laughs> and interacting with a team at your office job. You know, all of these things can be obsessively product focused. Am I producing? Am I measuring up? Am I making a thing that's good? Is the thing good? That's, that's what product-focused making really boils down to, by the way. Is the thing good? And this obsession with product is not bad on its face. Nothing is bad on its face. I think for people that have been listening to this podcast for some time, you know that I tend to be pretty comfortable playing in the gray areas, right? Like that there's tons of nuance to any story, to any opinion, to any idea. <laughs> there's this amazing, you know, gray scale <laughs> when it comes to, or, or even that gray scale, there's this amazing spectrum and range. And so when I say, that our obsession with product is a problem. I don't mean to say that we should just completely eliminate all considerations of what, of the what. Does that, that's not helpful either. We have created some pretty awesome shit in the world and in our lives by focusing on what we're making and what we're producing. And so um, but what I am going to suggest in this podcast, and I want to tell a couple stories, is to suggest that the how is absolutely just as much of an art form as the what. That the how you make a painting, for example, and you know I use visual art often because that's the type of creative person I am, but you can substitute anything here for whatever you're doing. How you do it is so equally so much as equally important that was kind of a clustery way to word that but you, <laughs> you get what I'm saying um and I feel like on, on its face that idea sounds really cool but like how do like how does that function and so I want to tell a couple stories that I think do a good job of explaining why focusing on the how focusing on the process of how you're making stuff will transform your creative life and career and relationships and products. <laughs> so, so I first started thinking about this idea when I was hiking the other day with my dogs. Um, those of you that followed my Instagram when it was up for a while, I used to post images of my dogs not as much anymore um but we have two rescue dogs Layla and Rose and Layla's seven Rose's three she's about to be four in August and I've nurturing 
and helping to rescue dogs is one of the cooler things that I think Jason and I have ever done. Um, we kind of knew what we were getting into when we decided to adopt Layla, who was truly a street dog that our friends found um, covered in fleas, lactating because she had been taken from her puppies too soon, wandering their neighborhood, completely underweight, um, so scared. And when we decided to, to adopt her, um, because they were going to take her to the shelter otherwise, we kind of knew, okay, this is going to be intense, but you know, all of the subsequent trauma and problems that Layla absorbed living on the streets, having her puppies taken away, presumably living with a not stable family or, or a person, whatever, all of that came into our household and, um, and it was a lot. And, and then Rose came along a couple years later and Layla just, you know, changed her entire personality, you know, sparkled when Rose came into our house and we were just going to foster her at the time and then immediately realized, oh man, this is our dog. This is our dog number two. And so we've had Layla for, gosh, five years now and we've had Rose for three and I remember the reason I tell you some of the context of the two of them is because when I used to hike with them all three of us <laughs> had you know pretty significant amount of stress um I was really motivated to teach them to hike off leash because I I'm like a, a freedom fighter when it comes to all areas of my life don't restrict me don't <laughs> confine me. I don't want to be in any kind of box. Um, and, <laughs> and I want to say that that's, you know, some people are like, oh, you, you didn't want to confine your dogs to a leash. No, that's actually not it. I didn't want to confine myself <laughs> to their leash. <laughs> so, But there was so much stress and nervousness of, are they going to run off? Are they going to stay with me? Are they going to, you know, be cool with other dogs if we meet them on the trail? A lot of this stuff was stuff that we just kind of had to figure out as we went. And the dogs could pick up on how nervous both of us were taking them on the trail off leash. And they reflected that nervousness. And hiking with them was kind of cool, but mostly just like a big exercise in nervousness and trying to survive. And it's, but over, over time, it's, you know, there was this trust that began to, to grow between the three of us and, the dogs began to relax. At least this is what I initially told myself. And, and then I began to relax. But really it was probably the other way around. I think at some point I started to relax and then they picked up on it. These dogs are the most amazing mirror. And it's why some people, I think, get really triggered by dogs. Because deep down I think all of us know that if a dog is being crappy in our presence, it's because they're responding to something inside of us that we may or may not be aware of. And <laughs> children are this way too. I learned this when I was a school teacher. And I'd like to even suggest this metaphor for y'all as artists. It's almost like, you know, you're walking around the earth, creating stuff all the time that's not necessarily visible with your energy. Um, the nervousness that you have, the joy that you have, the anger that you have, the frustration that you had, the conversation that you had with your partner 20 minutes before you left to go to the store. 
all of those things are getting projected all of the time. And people, depending on their sensitivity, are picking up on different degrees of that. And you're picking up on different degrees of other people's stuff all the time, just like dogs, just like children. The biggest difference is that most of us typically ignore it <laughs> because we were raised in a culture that doesn't really acknowledge that part of reality yet, although I think more and more they are. And, but, but irregardless, most of the time we're walking around doing very creative things with our energy that we have no idea about. And all of a sudden we, you know, adopt a dog and the dog weirdly becomes like a canvas. And suddenly the stuff that we're making is hitting this surface that quantifies the stuff into a visible product, right? Like, here's what I mean when I say that. We adopted Layla right when I was starting to work for myself as an artist. I had been a school teacher full time. I came to Austin to go to grad school. I did three years of grad school and then I left and I took two jobs, one teaching on a contract basis at a small independent art school here in Austin and, um, and as a part-time sign painter at Trader Joe's. I did that for a little while and then I decided to leave Trader Joe's and go into waiting tables so I could try building a small business. And within a year, I was getting so much work, like how wonderful and also terrifying um, that I left serving to try to be an artist full-time. And it was around this massive transition that we decided to, let's adopt a stressed out street dog, right? And, and one of the things Jason and I kind of both told ourselves was that Layla was bringing all of her stress into our house. And some of that was true. But I'll tell you what, what, what we discovered most of the time is Jason was working in the office, at, you know, this is way pre-COVID, <laughs> um, all day long, and I would be working at home, and we didn't really have a very big apartment at the time, so I was often just in the living room working, which is not ideal, and Layla would be there, and all of the subsequent stress that I was feeling about performance and am I going to be able to do this and am I going to make enough money and am I going to piss off the wrong client? I mean, I could give you hundreds and hundreds of things that I worried about in an hour, let alone a day. She was there to feel, to feel all that. And she reflected that back at me. She was the canvas where suddenly all of the stuff I was creating energetically was taking form in her and I got to tell you, it really made me not like Layla <laughs> in the beginning. I really blamed her. Um, the stories I told myself, I told myself some pretty false stories around what was going on. You know, oh, she's making my life so much harder. I already have so much stress dealing with working for myself. And all she does is walk around staring at me like she would walk around. For those of you that have met Layla, <laughs> she is a border collie mix. And that was something we didn't know a whole lot about because Jason and I never owned dogs before. <laughs> Layla. And so we didn't know anything about breeds or anything. So Layla, Layla is a, a rat terrier border collie mix. Two working dogs. Um, for those of you that don't have dogs, I didn't know this until we had dogs. Some breeds are working breeds. They need a job. And Layla is no exception. And so her she quickly made me her job and I was 
walking around our apartment stressed all day. And so she would follow me around with like this deep concern. <laughs> and she would stare at me with the, this intensity that's really hard to describe. I remember some of my dog friends when they would first meet Layla, one of the, they would almost always say, oh my God, she's so smart. Now, she is so smart, but it would, <laughs> it almost made it more difficult because she walked around reflecting all of my stress right back at me. And this is kind of a beautiful thing about having dogs is if you're willing to take on the challenge, especially of having a rescue dog that's really going to mirror your shit. Um, if you're willing to take that on, you can learn so much about yourself and change things about yourself that were formerly hidden to you. Same with being a school teacher. A lot of school teachers, um, we've, we used to have these conversations when I was an elementary school teacher that there's something about working, especially with little kids, but, but with any school age kids all the way up to senior and high school. Um, and, and arguably college, I would even say there's something about choosing a lifelong career, working with young people that keeps you young. And I think one of the reasons is because they're constantly reflecting stuff back to you. And you get to see yourself in this honest way that you never get with adults. Because adults will bullshit you (laughs) unintentionally too most of the time, right? Like adults have been taught to be nice. (laughs) Um, And I'm sure, I mean, even just think about a crappy boss that you've had, like, did you honestly reflect your boss's shit back at them? No, you want to keep your job, right? Like this kind of interaction happens between adults all day long. And so adults never really get this true, honest reflection from one another that you can get with animals and children. There's a little bit of a tangent, but I wanted to tell you that first because I was hiking with the dogs the other day and I've been not hiking with them as much. It's summer here in Austin. It's actually, thankfully, (laughs) a record-breakingly cool summer so far. Um, 80s, it's still, it's almost July. It'll be July tomorrow. And it's still in the 80s, low 90s (laughs) during the day, um, which is shocking. Usually we're like full-blown 100s plus by now. Um, And I'm so grateful because I'm gigantic. I'm 33 weeks. Um, I have this huge oven on the front of me all the time. And so I haven't been really wanting to hike with the dogs. Um, And I I realized the other day, I thought, oh man, like there's going to be a period of time where it's really challenging to hike with them for a few months until we get really settled with this kiddo. So I should enjoy these moments. Even if it's hot, I should take them out. And hiking with the dogs has become like our bonding together. It's um, the minute we get on the trail, they change. You know, both of them um, become like the highest version of themselves. You know, shit-eating grin, running back and forth, but they never ever like leave my side they view me as their job, they look after me, they make sure everything's okay, and they just, like, freak out (laughs) with happiness. 
oh my God, there's a butterfly. Oh my God, there's a rock. Oh my God, I got to pee on this thing. Oh my God, there's a branch. Oh my God, there's a stick. Oh my, like it's just pure joy for being in the moment. Like (laughs) it's so wonderful to hike with the dogs. And we haven't been hiking in a while. So when we went out um, the other day, the, the joy was exponential. Like the, the smiling, <laughs> they just smiled from beginning to end of this hike. And I was obviously like really dragging my feet, which they kind of liked because they could just like really savor the moment. It was a lovely hike. We had such a good time. And one of the reasons that I realized as we were hiking that I was having such an awesome time with them is because is is not because of the hike itself, right? It's because of how my dogs hike. The way that they are on the hike is the thing that makes it so awesome to be with them. Because they are a hundred percent in the moment and they are so happy about rocks and sticks and birds and squirrels and and like the absolute joy that they have over these things is contagious. You just feel good being around it. Like this is one of many reasons people love dogs. It's not, and it doesn't have to be on a hike, right? It could be cuddling with your dog on the couch. It could be, you know, throwing a ball for them in the backyard. It could be anything that you do with your dog. It's the dogs, the way that they do life is what makes them so awesome to be around. <laughs> it's amazing. And I started to think about how this idea is so incredibly important to me as an artist. And I want to talk a little bit more about that for your practice and how it matters for you and the way that it's transformed my career as potentially a way for you to think about your own career. Um, But I really wanted to start off with the story of Layla and Rose because I think everyone can relate to that feeling. Even if they don't have dogs, like Jason and I, you know, (laughs) I was 36 when we got Layla and Jason was 34. (laughs) We'd never had dogs before that, but we understood the idea of a dog, the joy of a dog, because dogs live in the moment how they do anything is profoundly special and I want to suggest that some of the coolest artists working now even if they're not famous even if they're just like you know working in small little communities as relative you know nobodies and I hate using that word because everybody is somebody but you know just like in relative you know instead of saying nobody I would say in in relative anonymity right even if they're doing that all the way up to being this very prolific famous artist you know current day or past in the history I really think some of the best artists have figured out and sort of hacked this idea of the how that it's not just enough to be obsessed with the what that you can get really really technically good at making something and if you don't consider how you're making that thing 
and how who you are is directly impacting the things that you make. If you don't consider those things at all, I think that you'll struggle. I do as a creative person. And um, when I talk about struggle, um, I don't just mean economically, although, you know, if you try to sell work that has no consideration of how, I do think that um, it would affect people. You know, I um, I want to talk a little bit about what that looks like in a minute, but I also think it just affects artists personally. I can't tell you how many artists I've met who start out and they will build an art practice or an art business based on what. What am I going to make? And it sounds like a good idea, right? I mean, isn't that the whole point? <laughs> to really consider what you're going to make. And I, I've learned over time that it's not the right question. It's the wrong, it's, it's the second question. The first question is how am I going to make it? How am I going to make stuff? And here's why. I, I know a lot of artists who've started out with the what, and usually 99% of the time, if you start with that question, you pick a what that you think is going to work with the world instead of yourself, right? And when I say work with the world, I mean, can I sell this thing? Will other people like this thing? Does this thing look good or sound good or just be, will it be judged as good? (laughs) Um, Even if you're not planning on selling your work, presumably if you start down a creative path, you're thinking about the way that the stuff that you're making is going to be received. And there's no way to avoid that when you're thinking about the what first. If you're thinking about the what first, you're automatically thinking about how other people are going to receive it or or just yourself. How how am I going to receive it? Am I going to be proud of this thing? And um you know I had a a friend years ago who began um an art career and I remember one of the things things that she told me when she started was I have a goal to make five figures within I think it was like a year or something like that so she was starting with a what right like this is and we hear lots of like fascinating tips right on these like (laughs) blogs and on and on podcasts and stuff about being very specific with your dreams and so I think that's what she was trying to do um and The thing that was so fascinating about this was that she hit it. She actually hit that number and she quit like three months afterwards because she was absolutely fucking miserable because how she was doing it, how she was getting this product out into the world was making her miserable. She hadn't thought about the how at all. She hadn't thought about how does this serve my soul? I'm going to just sit down every single day and work on this thing and maybe the what is getting me money but the how is making me miserable and that's why you start with the how and it doesn't matter if the thing that you're doing gets attention or if it makes money if you're really happy doing it you'll figure it out later (laughs) but you have to start with how how does this thing make me feel when I do it because I'm gonna have to sit down 
every day and work on this thing. The how is such an important art form. It's huge. And I've ha- I, you know, I, I know that this idea might create a little resistance. I'm not totally sure if everyone would be resistant to this idea, but I think some people really have legitimate resistance to this idea. Like, well, what good does it do to enjoy a thing if, you know, nobody really cares for it? Or if I'm putting it out there and nobody's buying it and I'm trying to be an artist professionally or, um, and so I want to talk a little bit about that because I think it's a legitimate question. And I also think over time, it's a moot point. And this story, I think, can kind of concretize the amorphousness of that idea pretty well. So I I love spinning um, for the spin cycling, <laughs> not not spinning in a field with my arms out or, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that, but I love spin cycling. Um, I have a road bike. I haven't really felt comfortable using it while I was pregnant. And so I've been going to spinning classes, um, and they are legitimately saving my pregnant back right now. I, I go four or five times a week. It's been wonderful. And for a while, you know, during the pandemic, I wasn't I had canceled my gym membership. I wasn't going at all. And so going back and getting back into the gym has, has been really lovely. But also what it did was it opened my eyes to the way that the how really shows up when it comes to people that teach aerobics classes. And I want to tell you the story about one of the teachers that I religiously see because he does this amazing job of illustrating how creative the how is, how important the <laughs> how important the how is as an art form in and of itself, because he focuses on the how just as much, I would say even possibly more than the what. And the what, in his case, is the technical stuff, right? Like, and he's good at that. Um, he knows how to count. He knows how to keep us in, um, keep us motivated through language. He knows how to, um, pick music that has certain, um, beats per minute and keep us on the beats per minute with his own, um, exercises that he comes up with, like all of the technical things that a spinning instructor knows how to do and should know how to do. He not only knows how to do them, but he does them really well, right? Like, so the what is very much there. It has to be. Like, I I think that people that only focus on the how and never the what also kind of run into a similar problem. Um, and so it's important to have, you know, access to good what <laughs> when you're working and when you're making something and make and, and make no mistake he's he's creating something in that studio with people that show up to take his classes we don't think of it as artistic but it absolutely is um so much is artistic in our world that we don't think about as artistic because we're used to thinking of artistry based on the what what are they making 
And when you think about a spinning instructor, it's kind of like, well, they're not like, what, what is, what are they really making? It's kind of hard to quantify it. Um, there's, they're creating a service for other people, but that doesn't, we don't really think of service as artistic. Um, we think of, you know, artistry as a physical, tangible product, but really we're starting to, I think more and more wake up to this idea that artistry isn't a thing as much as it is a quality of a thing. This is something that Brian Eno said famously, let's stop thinking of art as objects and start thinking of them as inroads to experiences, right? That the feelings and the experiences and the processes around these objects are just as much an art form, if not more. And from that regard, a spinning instructor is an art, absolutely an artist, sometimes, and sometimes they're not. And this is the thing that really caught my attention as I was returning to spinning this past year, is that all these instructors were kind of coming back into the studio and they were having to rebuild their classes from the ground up because people had completely stopped coming. And so it wasn't unheard of for (laughs) me to show up to a class and there to be you know one student there and you know usually inevitably one of the first things the instructor would say is oh you know there's going to be more people eventually it just has to build back up again and then one day I went to Daniel's class and Daniel's class had like 15 people in it (laughs) and it consistently has the most people in it Um, he's never talking about, oh, my class has to build its way back up. Immediately people started latching onto his classes. And I was curious, like, what, what is it? Um, You know, I immediately just wanted to like take his class when I saw how crowded it was. (laughs) And the reason why people love what Daniel makes in the spin cycling studio is because he focuses a lot of his attention on how he teaches. Daniel spends a lot of time thinking about his energy. And I want to be careful here and make a distinction before I move forward because one of the things Daniel doesn't do, and I don't think anyone who's really good at the how does this either, is he's not trying to hack the how. He's like, he's not thinking to himself, how can I use a motivational tone of voice, right? (laughs) Instead, it's like, oh, how can I create motivation in myself? And then it will just naturally kind of spread onto these students. That's what he's doing. You know, you can tell when someone's just trying to hack the surface. Um, Like you can tell... When someone is trying to use a motivational voice, but they don't have the motivation in their heart, like we're all really familiar with that. It, I, I, I actually don't think we spend enough time thinking about it. So sometimes it's really easy to have the wool pulled over our eyes, so to speak, when it comes to this. But if you really start to pay attention to how you feel around people instead of what you think around people, you will find people like Daniel so quickly. People that operate from a place of how feel awesome to be around because they don't think about what they're making they think about who they're being and they know 
that who they're being is just going to naturally kind of go into what they're making. This is, to me, the X factor of the how. And artists that have figured this out have art that makes people feel things. Not just makes people impressed with things. (laughs) Totally different. Technical prowess impresses people, but honest honesty moves people and Daniel moves people like I'll be in his class he's up there and he's like you are amazing and and he's not saying the words from a place of the what right he's he's saying them from a place in his heart he actually believes those things about us because he believes them about himself So when he says them, you feel it in a way that other instructors, it falls dead. I've heard other instructors say the same exact words. You've got this. You're doing this. And you're just kind of like, well, whatever. But when Daniel says it, you're like, whoa, warmth, fuzziness all over. I feel like, oh, and you instantly feel this surge. And the thing that's kind of crazy is that because you're surrounded by 15 other people that are also feeling it too, there's this collective power in his classes that are completely absent in other teachers spin spin studios it's amazing i don't you know i know people listening to this don't have direct experience necessarily with spin cycling i mean some some of you might but i know everyone knows what i'm talking about here like it just may be in a different realm where you're around someone and you don't totally know why you just feel really good around them and you know you may feel so good that you even try to quantify it like well what is it maybe it's the words that they use or maybe it's the expressions on their face but the minute that you even look like two inches below the surface of that rationale it starts to fall apart right because there's lots of other people that say those same things that don't make you feel that way or that have those same facial expressions that don't make you feel that way it's coming from inside right that's why it's so magical and hard to to hack because you can't hack that <laughs> you have to hack yourself this is the beauty of making things from the place of how is that if you want this magic in your work to appear the only way you're going to get it is to really look inside yourself and do lots of inner work and like (laughs) the (laughs) the other day I came in to spinning class with Daniel and he only teaches twice a week. I'm only able to go to one of them because of our birth classes conflicting. And I I told Jason, it like drives me crazy. He's like one of my favorite teachers and I can't ever see him. Um, but I went in the other day and we had been gone out of town for a few weeks um, traveling. I had gone to West Texas to do some business stuff. And then we went to Nashville to see some family. And I showed up after being gone for a few weeks and he was like oh man he's like I'm so happy to see you we thought maybe you were gone for maternity already and he was like holding the door for me as I was coming into the gym and I was like telling him oh no no I'm back I'm back and he's like cool and then as I walk through the door instead of following me into the gym he leaves (laughs) and I was like where's he going and he goes he goes to his car 
And he comes back into the studio as I'm setting up my bike and he has this bag with him. And we start class and he goes, Rebecca, he goes, um, in case you came back, he goes, I made a playlist um, today. All of the songs have the word baby <laughs> in it. And then at the, at the end of this amazing class, literally all with songs with baby in the lyrics, <laughs> he presents me with this just like small gift that him and some of the other students had gone in on for the baby. And I thought, no, I thought like, like, okay, on the surface, that sounds so cool, right? Like, oh, what a nice dude. Like, yeah, that's such a nice thing. But what I'm really interested in is who he is that that even occurred to him. Like, I guarantee most of the instructors at LA Fitness, right? This is a chain gym. These people don't get paid that much. They're literally just there for a paycheck most of the time. Most of them are not thinking about their students the second they leave the studio. This guy thinks about everyone that comes to his classes. All You can tell often. Um, when it's someone's birthday, he knows it and he plays a happy birthday song and we spin to it, right? Like <laughs> when we take breaks in between songs, he asks people about their life and people talk to one another in between sets. And there's this community that happens. And I like, yeah, all of those things are cool, right? Like, yes, that's, it's awesome. But what I'm really fascinated with is who does Daniel have to be in his heart and in his mind and in his spirit where those things just naturally kind of happen, right? He's not coming into the studio and like, how can I create community today? I mean, maybe he is a little bit, but I think more than anything, he's just, he's just who he is and who he is creates community naturally. This is fascinating to me. Because we live in a culture that's so obsessed with product that we don't think how who we are is creative at all. I, you can really see good examples of this when you meet people who are truly confused by what they're getting in their life. And Sometimes it's easier to see with other people than with ourselves, but I guarantee this has happened to you too, right? Where you're just like, you're like, wow, you know, I really, I, I'm like trying so hard and I keep getting, you know, these results that just like kind of suck, right? And it's confusing because there's these blind spots that we all have to the ways that, that who we are is creating in our lives, and I, I actually have started to notice this with some of the other spinning instructors. And it's maybe it's just speculation. I don't actually know if they're thinking this, but I suspect some of them might be, you know, because I can't always get into Daniel's classes and um, I want to spin more. And so I go to a lot of the, I think I've been to every teacher between two different locations in the past six months. And you can see you know, you can see them in the front of the studio and we're all like chugging along and you can see them, their confusion. Like, why aren't they more motivated? Why, why aren't they smiling? (laughs) 
right? And there's this disconnect between who they're being and what we're reflecting. And a lot of people, a lot of artists in this situation, um, that that's it's like a little bit too painful to look at that. And so then ultimately they just end up blaming the other party. Well, you know, they're just not motivated people, I guess. I wish there were more motivated spinners at this gym. <laughs> Whatever. And, you know, that, that kind of inner story and narrative works for a little while until you happen to go to someone's class like Daniel's and you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> Have you met an artist like that? I've met artists like that. When I was younger... I had oh, such a sobering experience <laughs> around this. Um, when I was in my undergrad, I... <sighs> so real. here's the short version of the story. So I've always been a really sensitive kid. I've always felt things really deeply. And it never occurred to me that the awkwardness was coming from the world I felt so awkward in my skin from a really young age and I just assumed it was because I was an awkward person and then at some point in high school I just decided I don't want to be awkward anymore (laughs) I do like I just I want to be like someone who is comfortable and maybe I can just pretend and maybe if I pretend long enough I'll become that I don't really remember the impetus for this. I I was a junior in high school. And so I decided the first thing I was going to do was I was just going to do things that not awkward people did or, or what I perceived not awkward people did. And so I started signing up for things. I (laughs) signed up for track and I signed up for ski club and I, you know, had some friends that were already in these groups anyway. And And then I just pretended that I wasn't terrified (laughs) to do them. And to my shock and and joy, discovered that people really also didn't view me as awkward. Like if I just acted like I was comfortable in my skin, 99% of people accepted that. (laughs) And that I could create who I was minute to minute. And it was really hard because I would feel awkward things coming in all the time. And so it was kind of like faking it a lot, a lot. But, you know, over time I got better and suddenly I wasn't faking it as much. This was like a really glorious time in my high school career. Junior and senior years were really, really lovely. I felt like I I hacked something, like I figured something out about life. And then I went to college and all of that awkwardness came back and all oh it was painful i remember my freshman year i just <laughs> i just and what i when i understand about myself now and i think and what i'd like to share with a lot of artists who identify as being more sensitive is i'd like for you to consider questioning the source of that of that awkwardness that you, you know that it's really easy to assume that you're you're awkward but re- but maybe Maybe, and I don't know for sure, but maybe you're just really adept at picking up on the awkwardness coming off of everybody else and you've mistaken it for your own. 
And here's how I discovered that that was what's going on in my life. I, I, um, in my undergrad, I've told this story briefly before in another podcast episode, but I, um, started working in a network marketing company. Um, it was a riot in so many ways. And if, (laughs) if you haven't heard that episode, um, you can go back. It was, I forget the title. It was, um, it was in 2020. I did, um, an episode for graduating high school kids. And I talk a lot about this time and it was a really funny time, but one of the things that was so fascinating about working in network marketing and, and when, if you're not familiar, by the way, network marketing is like Mary Kay or, um, Rodan and Fields, right? A lot of these cosmetic companies have a network marketing structure. They're uh, LuLaRoe, the yoga pants, right? Where part of the job is selling a product and part of the job is acquiring people under you. And oftentimes it's a pyramid scheme. Although every network marketing company from now until the end of time will swear that they're not a pyramid scheme. Um, but they absolutely are structured as a pyramid. And the only real way to make money um, is you have to also acquire people to work with you. And so one of the ways that this, I, that this type of business structure gets sold to incoming people is through some of the most charismatic high money earner folks in particular regions. Right. And so I was at the time back in undergrad, I was trying my hand at this network marketing company that sold internet, that sounds hysterical now, right? But this was 2001 <laughs> and internet was like revolutionary. <laughs> and so this company was, you know, trying to sell ISPs and stuff like this. And, and so we would go to these meetings and like hear from people that were making pretty decent money or, or you know, amazing money, if I'm being honest. And they were always incredibly charismatic. And it was during this time that I was reminded by some of these folks, oh, I can fake it. Like, I'm not great at it. I feel really awkward in my skin, but these people are faking it. And they would do classes on how to fake it. Like, but one of the things that I I just really intuitively understood, and I, I realized later that not everyone intuitively understood this like I did, is that I wasn't faking it. Um, If I was faking it, it wouldn't have worked in high school. (laughs) And what what I was doing was I was actually like faking it so good to myself that I believed I was a different person. And when you believe that you're a different person, um, you're actually not faking it anymore. <laughs> People are receiving what you're putting out there as authentic. So this is all, this is okay. So it's a little bit of a tangent, but this is all happening in undergrad and I'm, I'm slowly getting better at getting comfortable with myself through working in this network marketing company, which was a little ironic, you know, eventually I realized I was going to lose all my money if I kept doing this thing, but I'm forever grateful for how some of the folks over there really helped me reconnect with some of my inner power. And I, so I tell you that story because I really, I really want to tell you this story. So I, I finally leave, um, 
And it's my junior year of college. And I, I go to, I think, a fraternity party. I was dating someone in a fraternity for a couple of years. I, I show up at a fraternity party and I run into a group of guys that had lived in the floor above us my freshman year of college. And I had been pretty intimidated by these guys. A lot of the girls on my floor loved hanging out with them. They would have these room parties and sometimes I would awkwardly like show up and just sit in a corner with a beer, like not saying anything because I felt so nervous and they were so cool and no one would ever talk to me, which I was convinced was because I was awkward and weird and and so this is my memory of these guys and and they show up at this fraternity party and you know it's now it's like three years later and you know I say hi and and I'll never forget one of them was named Rob and Rob was like Rebecca and I remember he said my name like we had been friends forever and I was like oh man it's so good to see you it's been a couple years how you doing we talk for like five or ten minutes and then I'm like all right well I gotta go it's so good to see you and I'll never forget the last thing Rob said to me as I walked away. He goes, Rebecca, he goes, you're so cool. He goes, And I think it was because he was drunk that he said what he said next. But he goes, I actually thought you were kind of stuck up when we were freshmen. Oh, and it really caught me off guard. And I thought, and I said, what? He goes, yeah, I mean, you just didn't talk. Uh, you didn't ever like look happy. And I just thought, oh, you, you know, she doesn't like me. She like doesn't like any of us. She wishes she wasn't here. He, he like really candidly kind of told me his impression in, in this very vulnerable way, actually. And I was like, oh, man, no. <laughs> and, and then, you know, and then here I am being equally vulnerable, vulnerable and probably also tipsy. And I tell him, you know, no, actually it was just really awkward. And we laughed and parted ways or whatever. But what, what he made me realize was that I had a huge blind spot to how what I was creating in the world was landing with other people. You know, here I was feeling so uncomfortable, feeling so awkward and projecting that out into the space and then what and then what came back my way oh nothing nobody wanted to talk to me I felt which just created this feedback loop that was like really uncomfortable and Rob woke me up to this idea that maybe I wasn't the awkward one maybe other people were awkward and just desperately wanting someone like me to make them feel a little more comfortable and I was forever changed by that interaction. It made me realize the way that we all have blind spots around how we energetically create in the world through how we're being, not just what we're making, you know? Just sitting in a corner of Rob's dorm room as an 18-year-old was profoundly creative in how he viewed me. Um, and not just how he viewed me, but how our relationship unfolded or didn't unfold until I, um, changed some of who I was for the better and had done some inner work around who I was for the better. And then I didn't have to walk into a party 
and pretend that I was comfortable. I just was comfortable. And this is so artistic to me. I I know thinking about this idea as artistic is different, but I'd like to suggest that you're constantly making stuff in the world, constantly creating stuff that is invisible, possibly, but very real in how it comes back to you through reflections, whether it's from other folks, from your dog, from children, from whatever. And the better that we get at thinking about how we're being, the better we get at seeing what we're getting. You know, I I want to wrap up with this story as a way to kind of like tie the bow on this idea because I suspect some people are like, great, so what, like, you know, what does this mean for me as a working artist? What does this mean for me as a hobbyist, perhaps? What does this mean for me as a creator? Um, I know an artist um, right now that has probably some of the most renowned technical skill I've ever seen in my life. Um, you know, without going into tremendous amounts of detail, this person is able to draw renderings of things that you would swear were more beautiful than a photo. And I say that seriously, like not as beautiful as a photo, more beautiful than a photo. Like when I look at their drawings, I swear I could just reach my hand in and pull objects out. The the luminosity and the technical skill for which they're able to reproduce reality is the best I've seen. I, I you know, and I I'm not I'm not that old, but y'all, I'm halfway probably more or less through life. I'm forty. I've seen a pretty decent number of artists by this point. And I and when I say better than anyone I've seen, I mean better than in museums. Like I like this person is capable of blowing the lid off of the of the I don't I, I don't even know why that metaphor came into my head and I can't finish it. You know, but like blowing the lid off of some thing with this skill. Um, and, and I'm not totally sure if they're going to be able to do it. And one of the reasons why is because this person thinks almost not at all about how they're being when they make stuff. And so you look at their work and your brain is blown, <laughs> right? I've shown, I've shown this person's work to so many people. And I'm fascinated by, I'll never say what I think about this person's work. I'll just be like, you got to see this. And, and then just let people like receive it and, and express what they want to express without any knowledge of how I feel about it. And it's not a scientific study. I've only done it with like, you know, three or four dozen people probably in the past couple of years. But 
every single time, I can't think of one time that was different. Every single time there's this almost identical reaction between people. The first one is brain is blown. Like, whoa. And then that's it. There's no conversation after that. And it always surprises me because the technical skill is so fucking good that you would think that I'm always expecting, okay, this person's seriously going to ask me, like, who is this person? Where do they show work? Like, tell me about it, blah, blah, Nothing. It's always just kind of like, eh. It's like, whoa, and then eh. And I, and I, and I kind of know why, or at least I'd like to posit one reason why. It's because it's beautiful to your brain, but there's almost no heart in it. It doesn't make you feel anything. It blows your mind and then then and that's it. <laughs> right? Whereas you can see, you know, someone else's work that has almost no technical skill at all and it moves you to tears, right? Like this this is an important thing to think about. Like this person has dedicated their life to mastering technical skill in a way that I've never seen anyone else be able to do. And it doesn't make anyone feel anything. They just are really impressed by it in their mind. I mean, their minds are super impressed and then it's over. And maybe that's what this artist wants to do. Maybe that's something that I need to consider myself even as I'm recording this podcast, I'm thinking about that. Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe they don't have to make anyone feel anything. But I have, that makes me sad. Does it make you sad? As a creative person, as an artist, I'm always thinking about how people feel when they interact with my work. Because for me, part of being an artist isn't just wowing people's brains. (laughs) It's making them feel better in the world about themselves and about what they're doing here. And if art doesn't do that, then it's failing somehow. And so for me, only thinking about the what is a, is a failure that how we're making stuff is just as important. And it might be hard to think about this at like the first time and then once you think about it the first time you'll see it everywhere like I like I don't know if you've ever thought about this idea before of like technical skill versus spirit but you'll see it everywhere now like you'll go out and you'll be like oh god that's freaking so cool and it kind of feels whatever to me (laughs) or oh shit that's kind of like really rough around the edges but damn it hits me right in the heart you know You'll see it and you'll feel the difference. And the more that you see it, the more that you'll see it in your own life too. The more that you'll be able to see the ways that people react to you when your heart is in something versus when it's not. Um, I think that the really great masters, the really great artists, the ones that have... um. I don't want to say notoriety because there's plenty of artists with notoriety that, you know, just lucked out. (laughs) But the ones that are really doing cool stuff in the world, they've figured out the how. 
they figured out how to move people um, in the same in the same way that Daniel was able to move people in his spinning class, right? Like the way the way that he was able to make people feel good just by being around him. Uh, my my elementary school kids got this when we were on field trips. I you know would take third graders on field trips to the art museum, and often it would be the first time that any of them had ever been to the art museum. And every single year, I would have multiple kids come up to me. I remember the first year was the most noticeable. This little boy, Nick, I still remember his name, Nick, came running up to me. And he said, Miss Burley, Miss Burley, Miss Burley. You know, just so frenetic. And it caught me off guard because Nick was normally like kind of a quiet, <laughs> sort of chill kid. Didn't talk a whole lot. And I was like, yeah, dude, what? And he's like oh my gosh, I never expected to feel this way. That was literally verbatim what he said. Oh my gosh, I never expected to feel this way. The kids really get it. Like they go into a museum surrounded by these works that have been physically touched by an artist's hand and they feel it. He didn't say anything about I didn't expect to be impressed this way or I didn't expect it to be so beautiful. He, t- he didn't talk about the image at all. He talked about how he felt. And I was shocked at how many kids would talk about how they felt in the museum. This idea of how we're making people feel through our work is becoming more and more dominant in the culture. And I really think it's possible to transform your life and your art and your career by considering it. I... I was just um, working out by myself on a stationary bike while I was on vacation and I had made this playlist of music and on it was a couple songs by Lizzo. And it struck me that Lizzo, like in her iconic song, she didn't say, you know, oh gosh, what is the song? Um, I feel good as hell. She says, I feel good as hell. She doesn't say, I look good as hell, right? She says, I feel good as hell. Or when she did the song Fitness, right? And she's talking about, how am I going to feel when I'm done with this? Not how am I going to look, not how is my ass going to look. How am I going to feel when I'm done with this? And I, it was just one silly example, but I thought... One of the reasons why her songs resonate with so many women is because if you listen to them all, they focus on feeling. How do I feel like a badass woman instead of look like one, right? Because the last century has objectified women and, and made them feel like their looks were the thing to focus on. And it's not just women. <laughs> it's everyone. Everyone has been obsessed with image in our culture and it's changing people are less and less impressed by surface and technical skill and product they want to feel something it's why when you're driving through a neighborhood that's been built all these like brand new condos this is a huge thing in austin right now there's so much development happening here but it happens in every city and you see these, you know, mixed use complexes pop up that have retail in the bottom and these brand new condos or apartments on the top. And they're all like incredibly shiny and new and modern or whatever. 
And I can't tell you how many times I've gone through these neighborhoods and heard people say, it just doesn't feel like there's any soul here. And what they mean is when people say that, when they say it just doesn't feel like there's any soul here, what they're saying is whoever built these mixed use complexes, whoever designed them and then constructed them, they didn't love it. They had a lot of technical skill. Sure, shit looks great, but there was no love in this. I, I, like, it feels dead to me. Whereas you can go to like a shitty corner bar that's falling apart. And the minute you walk in, you're like, oh, I'm home. Because the owner fucking loves their bar. And they bring that energy into it every single day. That's the beauty of the how when you're creating something. And when you're cognizant of it and you wield it consciously in your own work, it's, it's professionally, it'll, it'll blow the top off of your art as a product and as a profession if you choose it or as a hobby if you choose it. Um, it'll also blow the lid off of your relationships and how you create with your partner and your family and your friends and how you create in your own mind when you think about yourself. It's it's just one of the neatest ideas that I've thought about in the past 10 years. How is an art form? It is just as much an art form as the what and yeah if you are fascinated with this idea and you're interested in taking classes in this idea the hard school is something you should check out because what we're doing is we're trying to offer different modalities for people to focus on how they're making stuff instead of what they're making and, and flexing those muscle, muscles consciously. And it's not for everybody, but it is absolutely blowing the minds of, of a lot of people because I think that, that it's, this is the time. Like we're in a time right now where focusing on how we make stuff is really needed by the planet and our communities and and our souls, if I'm being honest. So check it out, um, www.heartschool.co. <laughs> you can also um, link to the Heart School at our website, beccajborelli.com, or um, just my last name, B-O-R-R-E-L dot L-I. Thank you all for listening. This was a beastly episode, um, but it was a lot of fun for me to share with you, and I look forward to posting again soon.